Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupboard. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, can capitalism survive in economic singularity? Today we are joined again by author Calum Chase. He's back with a new book, The Economic Singularity, Artificial Intelligence and the Death of Capitalism. Callum, welcome back to the show. Hi, guys. It's a pleasure to be back. Now, we're returning to a favorite topic of ours, which is technological unemployment or the potential for job losses caused by automation. And it seems to me that most reasonable people can probably agree about the short term and the long term with this issue. What I mean is people agree about the short term in the sense that they recognize that there will be disruptions to labor sectors in the near future. Uh, The obvious example would be self-driving cars, replacing truck drivers, and that those people obviously are going to be affected and have to adjust somehow. And then I think also people generally would agree about the long term, that someday, perhaps very far out, we'll eventually have human-robot equivalents, and there will be literally nothing a human can do that a machine can't. Uh, The disagreement seems to be about what happens in the middle there, right? So, Callum, I'd like you to start by just staking out your position on this and Where do you think it stands in relation both to the mainstream and to the other thinkers on this topic? Sure. So I think I am probably outside the mainstream in that the mainstream thinks that there will be disruption. AI and robots and other technologies like virtual reality and so on will change the nature of people's jobs. But I think the mainstream view is that as long as people keep themselves educated, they can continue to work pretty much forever automation by machines won't cause long-term unemployment because it hasn't done in the past. That's the usual argument, uh, that it's the Luddite fallacy. We've seen in the past that machines have enabled products and services, products particularly, to be created more cheaply, which increases the wealth in the economy and creates more demand and creates more jobs. Even the people who have written at length about technological unemployment, like Martin Ford, whose excellent book, Rise of the Robots, was really the sort of the, the, the wake-up call for a lot of people. And um, Andrew McAfee and Eric Brynjolfsson, whose second machine age perhaps gave it some academic credibility because they're MIT professors. Even those guys kind of shy away from the idea that the disruption that they describe in detail will cause long-term unemployment. Whereas I think that there will be long-term unemployment and it's going to happen in the next two to four decades. And I think we need to start planning for what comes next. And we need to do it pretty quickly because even before it starts to happen, people will start to think about it happening and they may start to behave economically in anticipation. And that could be quite serious. Right. That's interesting. So there's going to be effects in the lead up to this that would change behavior. Right. Perceptual effects. If you think that you're going to lose your job soon to a computer, you'll act differently. Which, of course, if your book becomes wildly popular, it would contribute directly to that effect, wouldn't it? <laughs> That's a sneaky question, but yes, it's, it's possible. But I mean, I think that it's, it, you know, I'm, I'm not going to create a panic with my little book, but uh, we, we do need to be monitoring developments and, and doing scenario planning. And the sooner we start doing that, the better. So that's really what I'm, I'm trying to agitate for. So, so just to get more specific, you're saying the next two to four decades will start having long-term unemployment. So, I mean, obviously, there's always a certain percentage of the population that's unemployed at any given moment, and we tolerate that, uh, and you know, society doesn't crumble. 
But you're imagining that that number is going to increase steadily at some point, and we're going to hit that point sometime in the next two decades? Yeah, I think it may happen fairly quickly. I think it hasn't happened yet. Um, I think there's a lot of people who believe it has started to happen. But although you can be very cynical about governments, the data that most people believe in the States and the UK, for instance, is that those two economies are pretty near full employment. People who are unemployed at the moment are, on the whole, people who are transiting from one job to another. There's been downward pressure on incomes, which is probably an, an effect of globalization rather than automation. So I don't think it started to happen yet, but I do think it will happen in that sort of time frame. I think the first wave of it, this isn't an original thought, may well be drivers. Uh, and driving is the number one occupation in, in the majority of states in America now. And something like 5 million people are, are employed as drivers. And clearly when self-driving vehicles are accepted and the norm, those people aren't going to have jobs anymore. <clears throat> so what are they going to do? Now, as I say, the conventional wisdom is that they will be retrained and they'll be AI programmers or they'll be virtual reality landscape designers or something. And that's what I challenge. I think that what's coming is that AIs will be able to do everything that we can do at work better, cheaper, and faster than us. Right. No, won't be able to work at all. Right. There's sort of two things there, so I want to try to separate them, which one is that it takes time and energy to retrain, right? So maybe the truck driver who loses his job, it's not realistic for him to become a computer programmer, but it might be realistic for his child to grow up to become a computer programmer, right? But then there's a separate thing there, which is, will we even need the computer programmer by the time the child does their training, right? Because if the AIs are getting better on a number of fronts at once, it may not be possible to retrain, say, 5 million people or, you know, something like that for those types of jobs. Yeah, that's right. The, as you say, the, <clears throat> there's two issues. There's the speed of retraining, and then there's the question of whether the job will be open at all. It seems to me that machines are now better than us at image recognition. They can recognize faces better than us, which people did not expect to happen uh, by now. Mm -hmm. Five or ten years ago, that would have been, you know, people would have been surprised. They're beginning to overtake us in speech recognition. They're not there yet, but they're coming up hard on our heels. And they're also making rapid progress in natural language processing. Mm -hmm. And unlike us, they continue to improve at an exponential rate. And as we all know, I'm sure all of your audience knows, exponential growth is very, very fast. And it's backloaded. It, it looks like it's a bit slow, and then it speeds up. Mm -hmm. And when machines are much better at us than us at all those three things, image recognition, speech recognition, lang natural language processing, I think that you know, pretty much all the things that we do or could do for money will be done by machines. Because once a machine can do your job, it can do it cheaper, better, and faster, and so it will do your job. Now, that doesn't mean that's not bad news for us, and I'm sure we'll come on to that. And it doesn't mean that we become redundant as you know, inhabitants of the planet. But I think it means that we become redundant as economic agents. Now, I, I've been very sympathetic to this argument, and I'm sure our listeners know that. But I, I also have some skepticism, and, and in some ways I'm more skeptical than I used to be. And, and I think the reason is because, you know, all I have are really my intuitions, as I feel like the data for this doesn't exist yet. But, uh, you know, I imagine a shrinking island, right? So, and this certainly has been happening for a while, right? There's this island of things that only humans can do. And, and no doubt that has been, has been shrinking and will continue to shrink, right? And eventually, I feel like the question is, is that island too small for enough people to find jobs? 
But then I also feel like as the island's been shrinking, we've been subdividing it. And we've been pretty innovative of finding ways to make work for people out of smaller categories of tasks. So in the past on the podcast, we've talked about things that are remain scarce no matter what, right? No matter how good a machine gets, these are things that uh, we're not going to have in abundance. And mostly they're, they're things that you get from interacting with other humans, like human interaction itself, uh, the experience of being with other human beings. Attention is another huge one. Finite attention in the world. Status is another one. You know, status is always, com- you know, it's detri- positional. It's so. positional, right? So you can't really automate that away. So I just wonder, you know, because when I look around modern day cities and I see some of the weird businesses that are opening up that are all centered around experiences and and social interaction, I just wonder if enough innovation can just keep subdividing that island further and further and that we can't still find creative ways for people to work. What do you think of that? Well, you know, nobody knows. As you say, there is no data. Um, this is all judgment forecasting. And it may be that we will do that. It may be that we will cre- keep creating new jobs, which for some reason the AIs can't do. But I just, whenever somebody says, well, we'll do this job or that job, I always think, okay, but why won't an AI be able to do that? Um, it seems to me the only thing fairly soon that we will have that AIs don't have is consciousness. Now, consciousness, I think, maybe is what distinguishes art. I don't think, I think you, perhaps you can't create art if you haven't been conscious. There's a, there's a fun section in your book about this, uh, Callum, that I enjoyed where you talk about uh, like a computer that understands Rembrandt's style. Is that right? Did I get that? Mm-hmm. The artist, right? Yeah. Uh, so somebody programmed this computer, uh, trained it or, or something on, on a lot of paintings, and now it can generate new paintings that in some meaningful way look like Rembrandt paintings. And your argument in the book is, well, it's, you know, it's creating interesting data. It's, it's a good learning tool. But because it's generated by a computer, it's not art. And I wanted to disagree with that because I think it is art. I just think the artist is the computer programmer. I think I, I actually agree with you on your definition of art. I think art has to have an authorial intention to to exist. But I don't think it's a problem if it's one step up the chain. If I program a computer to make art, then I'm the artist, right? Uh, that's very interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Well, you might be right, in which case you've, you've demolished the last bastion of, of human work. <laughs> well, hold on. Let me, try to, <laughs> let me try to save it, though, because I think consciousness is actually behind the things I just listed, right? Con- okay, so attention. I don't care if a robot is watching me or paying attention to my uh, Right, content. in fact, that annoys us when we're looking at our stats on the podcast because there are bots that crawl our site for search terms or something and they screw up our numbers. Yeah. I want the attention of conscious <laughs> beings or, right, right. uh, you know, if I have like, uh, an experience in the city, you know, I go to, uh, a craft beer tasting event or an escape room or a board game cafe or all these weird new things that are opening. Um, I want to be there with people. Um, if I, you know, am seeking status, you know, I want status, that other conscious beings care about. Really, right? you can only have status if it's conferred on you by other people. Uh, like if you went to a, if you like played a video game where AI agents like told you you were in a really exclusive club, that wouldn't mean anything. Although that you, is, right? that does work on some people maybe. Uh, maybe. I don't know. All right. Well, maybe I just screwed that one up too. <laughs> well, I don't know. But, but I, I take it you're still skeptical that there's enough there. Well, I, I don't understand how people are going to get paid in, in very large numbers to provide those services. Um, for start, the sort of things you're talking about are, are often luxury goods, mm-hmm. um, only available to a small number of people, or um, 
we might have one or two of them, but most of the goods and services we buy will not be in that category. So there, there are always going to be scarce things. There's, there, there's never going to be any more Vermeers, uh, any more original Vermeers than there already are, because he, he died a long time ago and he can't make any more. But you know, those, those things are only going to be available to a small number of people. If it's important to you to go to a club where there are other people, then that'll happen. And it may well happen in virtual reality as well as in the real world. But why are you going to pay the other people to pay attention to you? You know, they, they will go there for the same reason as you. They'll be consumers of that experience alongside you. Um, whatever the experience is can be produced by the AIs uh, better and cheaper and faster than a human can produce it. And we humans will, will witness it. I mean, I think people do pay for attention, you know, People, advertising people with bands that are not and never will be profitable, you know, pay Facebook to boost their ads. So, well, yeah, so some, all advertising is paying for someone's attention, right? Right. Yeah, but don't, we don't pay very much for it. You know, the, the amount of money, um, Kevin Kelly in his recent book, The Inevitable, I think, did some calculations about the amount of money that people get paid for a, 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 a minute of their, of their attention. And it's a very small amount of money. Otherwise, you know, how, how, could, how could bars of soap pay for it? Right. Well, right. And inevitably in this argument, I have to just appeal to the fact that entrepreneurs are innovative and that this is sort of the palette they have to work with. And I, I can't tell you exactly how to turn this into a economy-wide scheme. I just wonder if it's possible. Right. I mean, you got to remember, people paid very little for gasoline before the car was invented because it was a waste product of kerosene. You know, I mean, the fact that it's not worth a lot now just says that we have an economy that creates other value. But if that economy goes away, I'm not sure that people won't pay. F I mean, clearly people are willing to pay for attention in some cases. So perhaps they'll just have to pay more. Perhaps the price of attention goes up. Or what I was thinking as you were mentioning that other people will go to the club for the same reason you are, perhaps attention becomes a non-monetary kind of economy where you pay attention in exchange for other attention, essentially. And perhaps it's not, perhaps it doesn't get captured in the traditional capitalist monetary economy the way that the way that other things do but that doesn't mean it's not a significant driver of, of humans actions but of course that sure. wouldn't that wouldn't change Callum's thesis well no that would support the thesis yeah. as i was saying it that would be one more thing that we don't work to achieve instead we sort of barter attention <laughs> yeah exactly i yeah. think that that's quite likely to happen but i'm not seeing where the job is here i don't really understand what, what the form of employment, which is going to be enough to keep somebody alive and keep them in a nice middle-class lifestyle. Well, I, I have some harebrained schemes about that, but we'll, we'll move <laughs> on for now. Because I'm curious, Callum, what you think about another sort of potential point of skepticism. And I feel like this is touched upon in the book, but I would like you to go maybe a little deeper with it, which is just the idea of actually augmenting humans, right? I mean, obviously, this whole argument is premised upon the idea that humans have a limited set of abilities, and when machines surpass that, then humans are out of work. But if humans are constantly expanding those abilities, then maybe that's not an issue. Now, there are invasive ways to do this with, you know, possible brain implants and brain computer interfaces I think you and call so them on. insidables in your... In insidables are kind of the next generation of wearables, aren't they? <laughs> That's a funny term. I like it. I, so if we, we think about this as, you know, nanobots in your blood or some other, exactly. yeah. some other yeah. technology that's, uh, that's your in, or chips in your brain or something like that. Some other technology that's inside your body that... Uh... Yeah, it's when you internalize Google Glass. <laughs> yeah, right. So I would, yes, yeah, so incitables would be one part of this. I would say that maybe you don't even need that, though, that maybe uh, personal assistance software that's personalized enough to you 
um, to where your particular human contribution to training and influencing that digital assistant is specific enough that you're, you're not, the combination of you and that assistant is not an interchangeable thing, right? You're, the labor that you're able to produce with your trained assistant is not the same as what someone else would be able to do with their assistant, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So the idea is that humans become augmented so that the AIs are no longer smarter than us or they, they don't get that much smarter than us. It's like in, the in centaur it. thing in chess, right? Well, the centaur thing is slightly different, although they could blur. So the centaur idea, just to lay that one out, it, it, Gary Kasparov, the chap who got beaten by Deep Blue, noticed that uh, humans plus chess computers could beat chess computers. Um, and so the idea has, has grown up that uh, humans working with computers can be more effective than just uh, machines on their own. And therefore, uh, we won't be made uh, unemployed. It's just the, the, the trouble I have with that idea is that the human component, what the, the bit that humans are bringing to the party, uh, is always being encroached on by the machines, and you know, they, arguably they don't need us to do the employed bit um, for, uh, after a while. I think the the concept you're talking about of augmentation is taking that further, and and is saying that we actually merge to a large degree with with the AIs. Now, in the very long term, beyond the scope of the economic singularity, I think that is our best future. Um, because even when we get to the technological singularity, when superintelligence arises, if we don't merge with the machines, then we become the second smartest species on the planet, which is an uncomfortable place to be. Uh, and we may well succumb, succumb to despair because we know that there's an entity which is frankly much more important than us knocking about. And it's just getting smarter and smarter at a terrifying Will rate. Will we despair, though? Because uh, haven't people believed that pretty fervently for a long time, even if it wasn't true? <laughs> you mean with regard to religion? Yeah, I mean, that seems, if anything, uh, religious people, I think, uh, score higher on happiness uh, tests than, uh, than the atheists, right? So uh, maybe knowing for certain that there just is a benevolent, superior being or race of well, benevolent such. is well obviously if it's not benevolent we're all computronium and there's no question to be asked right but uh yeah. <laughs> we've all been turned into paper clips but uh, if that doesn't happen then we assume it's it's okay with our existence maybe it wants us to do a rain dance or whatever yeah i guess it i mean it, but it's one thing to to believe in an all-powerful being which you never meet yes uh, and and which you believe and you hope is is benign towards you and as long as you pray hard enough to it and you live according according to its codes it will treat you well. That's one thing. But to, to live in a world where there's daily evidence all around you that this thing exists and you're not sure what it thinks, you don't really understand it, and, and it didn't create you, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. and it certainly didn't create you in its image, that's, that's possibly a, a very different thing. I mean, I don't know. Maybe uh, we could all be very happy with this wonderful big brother or big sister looking after us. Maybe that's a great future. It strikes me that we'd be better off, and, and frankly, it'd be more fun anyway to, mm -hmm. to merge with the machine. Yeah. Um, but in the short term, in the, you know, before we get there, I think augmenting human minds by merging them with machines to any really intimate degree is pretty much the same as solving the problem of uploading. You've, you've got to either understand or find an algorithm which automatic, automatically understands how to connect all of our neurons with the, uh, with, with the processes that are operating inside the machine. It's a formidably difficult problem. And I think it's pretty much the same as uploading, and I doubt very much whether that's going to be solved until after the superintelligence arrives and helps us. So I don't hold out too much hope for profound 
human augmentation with AI until we get to superintelligence. And therefore, I don't think it can help us race with the machines as opposed to against them uh, in the context of technological unemployment. Well, that sort of brings us to uh, something else I wanted to discuss, which is uh, there's another thinker out there who we've had as a guest on the show and whose book we liked, uh, Robin Hanson. And uh, you and he have had an amusing uh, back and forth recently on the, on the internet. I saw both of your posts about each other's books and a, a little bit of follow-up. So I wanted to pull something out of that discussion and bring it up to you here. In the book, you have these three reasons why it might be different this time. I mean, Hansen's just sort of dismissed this stuff. And he says, well, all three of these things have been true for a long time. So I don't see the, the point. And I think he's right about the first thing and the third thing, which are both, you know, that te technology is, is, is getting better all the time, which has been true for a long time, and that uh, it is theoretically possible to replace humans at jobs, which has been true for a long time. But I just really want to focus in on the second reason, which is that machine intelligence is approaching or overtaking our ability to ingest, process, and pass on data in visual form and in natural language. So it's a very specific set of capabilities that we're seeing computers obtain right now, visual and natural language uh, processing. Something that I, I think he's wrong, actually, about this. I don't think it has been true for a long time. I think it's been true for a short time, maybe since the late 80s at the earliest, and maybe not really, maybe more like for a decade. Have we seriously been able to claim that machine intelligence is approaching or overtaking human abilities in, in visual or natural language? I don't know. What do you think about that? Or what's your response to that? Yeah, I mean, Robin is an absolutely charming guy. I met him in London a little while ago. And as you say, we've, we've got a bet about whether a machine will have common sense within a decade. Right. Uh, and that's simply because I reported... Jeff Hinton, who was the founder, if you like, of machine learning, he, he kept uh, neural networks going for decades in Toronto and uh, crossed the threshold in 2012 um, and, and has sort of founded the whole field of deep learning. Um, he said about a year ago or maybe six months ago that in a decade we would have probably have machines with, with common sense, which doesn't mean consciousness. It just means that they'll have an internal model which enables them to predict um, reasonably accurately what will happen in the very near future, given certain, certain circumstances. Right. There's an example in the book. Maybe you could give us that. I think it's about a, a chair in an audience or it's something. It's actually an example from a, a, um, a professor here called Murray Shanahan, who just points out that if, if, if you're uh, in a crowd of people and you throw a table into the crowd, <laughs> you as a human know what will happen. Um, some people will get hurt. Some people get very angry. And the person who throws the table through the table will probably get arrested. The machine... <laughs> No, no machine currently would have the faintest idea what would happen because it doesn't understand how the world works. So, right, because there's not like a specific law against throwing tables at crowds off stages, right? It's exactly, not like, yeah. you can't look that up in a law book. It's, it, you're exactly, supposed yeah. to understand that that will cause trouble. Right, right, right. Yeah, and, and we, with our sort of years and years of observing how the world works as we grow up, we, we acquire that, that, that level of understanding and we call it common sense. And Robin thinks that this is complete nonsense, that we won't have a machine in 10 years that have common sense. So, and he put that in his review of my book. So I, I jumped on that and said, well, do you want to have a bet? Because he's a betting man. He, he is. Yeah, he, he, yeah. he strongly uh, promotes uh, betting markets and for various problems. Exactly, which I think is a very valuable contribution he's made, because I, I do think that can be a very useful tool. So I said, um, you know, taking all that into account, I said, would you like to have a bet, Robin? And he jumped on it. Which is great because he's given me 50 to 1 odds to be, to be on the side of Jeff Hinton in a bet, which I'm, I'm feeling very comfortable about. 
So if there is a machine with common sense uh, in 10 years, he owes me, I think it's $5,000. And if there isn't, I owe, I owe him $100. Hundred dollars. So that's a, that's a good deal for you. And yeah. if you lose yeah, the yeah. bet, you can always point at Jeff Hinton and say, "Like, what the heck? You led me I astray." Could send in, I could send in the bill. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, so uh, did you? You guys, I think, if I remember correctly, you agreed on some um, third person to be the judge. Is that right? Of whether yes, this is true? Yes. David Wood, who's the chair of the London Futures Group. And oh, excellent. He's someone that we both know, so we both trust him to be the, to the judge. Of right. Because that was going to be my next question. Was like, how do you? I mean, I don't even know if I can judge if a human has common sense. <laughs> like, because <laughs> we all know some who don't. <laughs> well, there's some who I, who I would say that about. Of course, those people would know. You can't throw a table at an audience full of people, but they might. I mean, I think common sense is such a broad and hard to define thing. Um, I might side with Hansen in the sense that I don't think a computer will have the entirety of common sense that a human being has in ten years. But I'd probably side with you in that. I think it is likely a computer will have enough common sense to do certain jobs in 10 years, which I think is probably all we need for it to be an issue. Well, exactly. Uh, And actually, to let you on a little secret, I I think the bet has a flaw in that uh, (laughs) I think it'll probably be open to Robin to say, hang on, we're talking about human level common sense. And unless you've got a machine which has every single bit of common sense you'd expect a human to have, that doesn't count. Whereas I don't think that's what Jeff Hinton was talking about. That, that, isn't what, that isn't the way I offered the bet in the first place. I'm not too concerned about this because, frankly, if, if Robin gets very stubborn about it and says, sorry, that won't apply, <laughs> then I don't like giving him 100 bucks. You know, what's 100 bucks going to be worth in, in 10 years anyway? <laughs> right, right. No, it's, it's obviously a good deal for you. Um, yeah, yeah. Either not, way. Not, I, there's not too much downside for me. And, and you know, I think we'll obviously we'll have to rely on David making a, 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 a decent, decent judgment, which he will. He's a, smart, he's a smart guy. Well, you'll have to hope that he has some common sense, right? Uh, David's got lots of common sense. He's a very bright guy. He's, <laughs> he's got a first from Cambridge and, uh, and has just written a very good book, actually, about aging, which everybody should read. But he's a well-qualified judge, I think. But on, on, the, on the more substantive issues, Robin and I disagree about just about everything, which is great. You know, it's good to have people in that position. And as you say, Robin thinks that uh, it's been true for ages that machines could be described as being on the point of being able to replace humans. And I think that's utter nonsense. I think that until very recently, they were nowhere near as good at us as, as us at things like image recognition and, and speech recognition. And it's really only in the last few years that it's happened. And of course, as I'm sure all your audience knows, um, we're at the very early stages of AI. It's a 60-year-old science, but it's, in a sense, brand new because uh, it now works for the first time. So there aren't going to be any more AI winters because it works. It, it, it generates tons of money, and it's going to generate a lot more. Um, so it, we are in a different place. The, a lot of the people who say it's just the Luddite fallacy like to say, oh, it's, it's the boy who cried wolf story all over again. You're crying wolf. Stop it. Um, the thing about... the the boy who cried wolf story, though, is that in the end, the wolf did arrive. And That's right. They you know, seem to be missing the point of that story. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I do think it's different this time for, for those reasons. And, and it isn't just going to be the same old story of automation that we've had in the past. It's more like uh, a situation where the, the, the humans are going to be like the horse was uh, in the Industrial Revolution, where you know, 1900 was peak horse with 25 million or so horses working on farms in America, 40% of all humans who worked in America worked on farms. And 100 years later, there was only about 1% of, of the humans working on farms. And all the other humans had gone off to do other jobs, and that was fine. But the horses didn't go off to do other jobs. The horses just disappeared. There aren't horses working on farms in America anymore. 
Right. Um, and there are far so, fewer horses alive. So we better be worried about that. Right. Well, where that analogy, which I, which I agree with generally speaking, uh, where it breaks down a little bit is that, you know, humans being us and being the dominant species on the planet, we don't want to remove humans from all interactions per se. You know, we're happy just to have horses go to the sidelines, but I feel yeah. like, yeah. you know, we'll be more interested in finding good uses for humans than we ever were for horses is what I'm trying to say. Exactly. But I just don't think there'll be employed uses. Now, we, we should we should get on to the, the upside of this because, you know, it, it, I don't think it is a bad news story. So where I think we should get to if we play our cards right as a species is a world where humans aren't being paid to work, but they are still um, flourishing and doing all the things that humans like to do, only they're, they're doing it more because they don't have to work. So we're going to need some form of universal basic income. We're, I believe we're probably going to need a new economic system, which is why I call the book The Economic Singularity. But I think that we can get to a world, if we, if we plan it and manage it, manage it well, we can get to a world where humans play and learn and explore and socialize and just chill um, and have a great life without having to work for a living. We will, I don't think we'll run out of things to do. I don't think we'll run out of projects and, and work to do. It's just that we won't get paid for the work because all the paid stuff will be done by machines. Right. And the whole value of getting paid for your work stems from this world of scarcity that we've always lived in. So if that world recedes somewhat and there's less scarcity and it's easier to get by, you could see a cultural shift happening where work is less valued. But here in America in particular, work is so highly valued as an identity marker. Uh, it just seems like a tremendous cultural challenge to, to change that on the timescale that you're talking about. I mean, in the book, you have uh, specific dates laid out with predictions, and the latest of them is like 2041. So we're talking about you know two decades the maximum, pretty much? Yeah, yeah. I should, I should stress those are not forecasts. Those are just a possible scenario. Right, right, uh, right. You know, the only thing we know about all forecasts is that they're wrong. So I, I go to great lengths and probably rather boringly um, <laughs> emphasize how, how they're not forecasts. They're just a, a story of how it might, might pan out. Um, so even if they're but, off by 20 years, though, that's still a, a remarkably fast time to like uh, upend a several hundreds-year-old culture of valuing work. Um, it is, it is. But you know, the human race is, the human species is very good at changing its uh, dominant cultural ideas when it has to. Um, <laughs> but only and, when and it, it will have to, to <laughs> in, this new, in this new world. I mean, just, just recently in American history, um, the attitudes towards gay marriage, the attitudes towards homosexuality generally, the, attitu the attitudes towards uh, transgender people have you know, they've turned on a sixpence within a decade or so. If you'd said to somebody in 2000 that by, by this year it would be legal to get, to get married as a gay person in most states in America, they'd have laughed at you or cried if they, <laughs> if they were on. <laughs> um, and similarly, the, the legalization of cannabis, which is, you know, racing across the states. Nobody expected that 10 years ago. Um, the same sorts of cultural changes are sweeping... All, all over the world, um, when the French Revolution came along, attitudes towards monarchy and the aristocracy changed overnight. 
So, you know, we are capable of very fast... Yeah, it's amazing what a guillotine will do to change people's minds, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's nothing, nothing like a, a crisis to focus people's minds. And if you get to the point where, uh, you know, a quarter of the American population, including a lot of, you know, sort of middle-class people who are clearly keen to work and are not work-shy in the least, are no longer able to work, and either we provide some form of income for them or they starve, I think attitudes will change very quickly. Well, I agree with you about that. And I also, I mean, a slight tangent here, but it, we recently talked to Kevin Kelly about this and the issue of privacy. And I think that's another issue or area where culture may have to adapt somewhat rapidly to, to new societal norms, specifically having a lot less privacy than we've been used to. Right. And we're seeing the sort of growing pains of that now. Like, yeah. I think backlash on, on social media and such uh, is, is the culture changing. It's the, the groans of the culture changing. Right. Yeah. But steering this back to, to work, uh, you, you did mention universal basic income, and it sounds like you're for it in the long term. Uh, in the book, though, you're, you sound also pretty skeptical of it in the short term. Uh, do you want to sketch out your exact position on this? Yeah, sure. So a lot of people who are uh, politically on the left think that it would be a good idea to introduce universal basic income now. Right. Uh, and it's sometimes said that if you did that, then you could abolish the um, all the, you know, you could get rid of all the bureaucrats who do means testing, uh, whether it be Medicaid, Medicare, or uh, the welfare Food states. stamps, uh, things like that, right? Yeah, all that stuff. So you could get rid of all the bureaucrats, and that would pay for, um, uh, it, that would make it possible to distribute a basic level of income. Well, the maths don't add up. Um, it, it, it simply wouldn't work. It would be fantastically expensive. And although it might be a nice thing to do, um, it, it's not really affordable in, in our current under our current economic system because we don't generate enough wealth, products and goods are not made and supplied cheaply enough. And any country which introduced UBI on its own would, I think, hear a giant sucking sound as all the rich people left and a whole load of poor people arrived. So the Swiss recently had a referendum on this and they voted overwhelmingly not to introduce UBI. And I think the Swiss are, are not daft and they, they made the right decision. So, you know, I don't think it is the right thing to do now. And on that issue about, you know, you, you, you send all the bureaucrats away and that's how you save a lot of money. The trouble is that different people need different amounts of money. A single dad with three kids needs a different amount of money than somebody just out of college um, who's fit and healthy and has no dependents. So you'd then have to call back a whole load of the bureaucrats to administer those differences. So it, it's, um, I, don't, I don't think the argument works that it should be introduced now. But I think at the point when a significant chunk of the population is unemployable and has, has become the unnecessary at, then it's inevitable because otherwise you get starvation and then you, we, we just cannot tolerate that. Now, I do think, though, it can be done gradually, right? I mean, I think most, if you start with a very modest level of basic income, which I think is where it might have to start given the, the economic realities, and maybe just replace a few means-tested programs, you could maybe begin to phase this in. Right, or the thing I heard recently uh, suggested was you just do one for children. Just, just end child poverty. Have it turn off when you turn 18. Okay, so you could have, you could have kind of experiments with the way that, that welfare programs are run. Right. And this is actually what the Finns are mm -hmm. planning. The Finns aren't introducing universal basic income out of some you know, left-wing idea that it will abolish inequality. They're doing it because they've recognized that their existing welfare structure doesn't work very well, and they want to devise some ways to improve it. Mm 
So yeah, you can do some tinkering at the edges like that, but that's not tackling the main problem which is going to arise, which is that the people who were previously the breadwinners are in fairly short order not going to be breadwinners anymore. So at that point it becomes an entirely different proposition. And the point about universal basic income is it's 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 basic as well as being universal. So basic in the sense that it covers it it pays for you to have a good standard of living, not just, you know, living on the poverty line. So it's expensive. Right. So it seems like, I mean, the thing about basic income that's tricky is there's definitely two different things happening at the same time in this argument, right? Because what you're talking about is using it to fix this hole in, in the capitalist system once we have total automation. Uh, and I think, I think we're in agreement about that. And I think it seems like many of the thinkers are that eventually if we got there, that would be the, the fix. It does seem like the people that are pushing for it now are, yeah, are talking about what you're suggesting, which is just basically reforming our systems along actually pretty conservative lines, right? To just say, it's replace, to work better. just give people money instead of something that's, you well, know. There's, yeah, there's different reasons that you might do it. You might do it to reduce how uh, paternalistic the exactly uh, welfare is. So if you just give people money rather than vouchers, you're leaving them more in control. Uh, you might do it just to reduce the overhead like he's talking about, although I think that's maybe overblown. There's this sense that government bureaucracies are very wasteful, but when you look at the actual numbers, it doesn't seem t to actually save that much money to fire all the bureaucrats. It seems like most of that money actually goes into people's hands. But yeah, it does seem like uh, using UBI to eradicate poverty, which is what I've seen argued for on the left, is a different argument than using UBI to the third thing, yeah. save capitalism in the event of widespread unemployment, right? Because you could also fix this problem with direct provisioning. If the government or a large charitable organization owns a lot of machinery and they just give people the stuff they need to survive, then we don't need a universal basic income. You could be poor and you'd still have a good standard of living if, if that organization or government provided one. You, you could do that, but the trouble with that is that means bureaucrats are going to be deciding who gets what and not just... Or algorithms. Or, or even algorithms, but uh, the, the market is a very effective mechanism. Uh, it, it forces consumers to, to say honestly and truthfully and quickly what they want. Because if you're spending your own money, you don't lie about what you want. You know, you, if you, you buy a car, you buy the best car you can buy with the money you've got available. Um, if you take that signaling away, the economy will get very inefficient. And that is, what, is one of the things, obviously, that led to the downfall of the Soviet Union. Um, fantastic levels of inefficiency. And I think if you're going to have a, um, a, a kind of a, an income granted to all of us as civilians, if you, if you have the choice of having it given to you by a state in the form of a car and a house and clothes, that's not going to be as good a position as having it given to you in, in cash that you can choose what you want to spend it on. Well, I definitely agree with that. I mean, that's, I think, one of the huge advantages of, of, a, of a basic income scheme, if we could get there, as you say, you know, <laughs> right. it, without it. It props up capitalism. Yeah. It allows you to keep those, the positive elements of a market economy, yeah. the, the prioritization and signaling that you're talking about uh, while um, putting a floor on, on suffering. And you're saying, oh, it has to be enough to live a good life, but I think that's pretty subjective. So that floor on suffering could be set, I think, anywhere north of starving and you'll, you know, it'll do something. 
um, obviously there's yeah. there's more and less that you could do. And anything north of starving would be better than nothing. But um, right. I think you get tremendous unease if it's um, if it's breadline level income. Uh, and we we, do, we surely don't want a society where most people are living on the breadline. It, it doesn't seem like that's the point of all of this technological progress that we're working yeah, exactly, on, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> to return better. to a worse period of time that we achieved in the past with less technology. <laughs> so you, you've said a couple of times, um, Ted, about saving capitalism. And, and the book is, um, is subtitled um, Artificial Intelligence and the Death of Capitalism. So right. I probably ought to explain why why I think that's going to happen. As somebody tweeted at me recently, oh my goodness, how many times does capitalism have to die? <laughs> and and uh, I said, well, maybe just once per country. And she said, no, no, maybe just once per author. Um, <laughs> but, um, and as, as somebody who's been in business for 30 years, I ha have been extremely unhappy about arriving at the conclusion that I don't think capitalism will continue to serve us well in this new world where nobody works. And the reason why I think that is that if we maintain the institute of private, institution of private property, which is obviously one of the central pillars of capitalism, um, we'll end up in a world where there'll be a small number of people who own most of the AI. And because AI will be what produces most of the value in the economy, they will own pretty much everything else as well. And obviously, we know who some of them are. They're, the, uh, they're, they're, they're Larry Page and Sergey Brin and Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and the people who own Baidu and Tencent and Alibaba and so on. Right, right. Now, those people actually seem to me to be people of goodwill. Um, America's always had a fantastic tradition of philanthropy, but the current generation of tech giants seem to take that to a new levels. You know, Bill Gates determined to give away most of his money. Mark Zuckerberg has put most of his assets into a charitable institution, which he still controls, but it's still a charitable institution. Um, and so on. And, and, and the, the Google founders, their motivation in life seems to be to make the future hurry up rather than to make lots of money. Um, but nevertheless, they will be in this peculiar position of, ha of, of owning probably most of the assets in the world and quite possibly almost all the assets in the world. And they will also, because technology isn't going to slow down, it's going to carry on accelerating. They will also have privileged access to a steady flow of technologies which will improve humans cognitively and physically. And whether they like it or not, because they'll have that privileged access to those technologies, I think it's almost inevitable that they will speciate. They will become a separate species. And we'll end up in this scenario, which, um, which, is, which is, I think is gradually becoming called the, the gods and the useless scenario. So you have most people living on universal basic income, perfectly nice middle-class American standard of life, but you have this small number of people who are effectively gods. They have dramatically better um, life outlooks. And again, that's possibly a scenario which could work out well for everybody, but it just strikes me as being almost bound to lead to to Brave New World or some other dystopia. So. I've arrived at the conclusion very reluctantly that we may well have to abolish capitalism and abolish private property and place the assets into common ownership. Now, I don't mean by that traditional communism or socialism, because we know that when states own all the assets, things go horribly wrong. But possibly there'll be some way of mediating common ownership of, of all the assets through the blockchain so that we all collectively own the assets, um, but there is no central organization which is owning them. 
Now, I haven't got very far down the track of drawing up what that world looks like, but I think maybe we need to move to something like that once technological unemployment has, has, really, has really bitten. Yeah, I think that uh, this is one of the things I really want to talk to you about, because I like this about your book, that you, you bring up this issue, which you call in the book cohesion, right? Will we actually be able to stay one society where, you know, or will the wealthy people, like you said, speciate and almost become a gods? Uh, I think it's a real possibility. I mean, I think there's an image that you have in the book that I quite enjoy about, you know, the economy being like a game of musical chairs. And when it stops, you know, just you sit down in the chairs you're in, you have the wealth you have, and like, that's just how it's going to be forever. So yeah. if you're if you're Zuckerberg, when full automation hits, then you just won the game, and everyone yeah. else is stuck without a chair. I think that's a real concern. I wonder about whether or not abolishing private property, though, would be the way to go. So I mean, it it seems like that's the case with real estate, right? Because with land, that's one of those fundamentally scarce things that it's very easy for just some people to have all of it or most of it. Uh, and, and maybe that's a, a situation we want to avoid. Again, for some of the other scarce things that we mentioned, like attention, say, I feel like how do you, you still have an allocation problem there that money and markets are designed to, to deal with. So I feel like there's still a place for some kind of money and markets in this future. Or, or is that not what your point was? Well, actually, if we could retain money and if we can retain the fantastic efficiency of the market, then I'd welcome that. What, what worries me is um, the, a, a level of inequality not over assets. It's not actually the ownership of the assets that perturbs me so much. It's more the privileged access to the flow of new technologies. Mm. It's more what that will do to people and how it will you know, create different camps who are very, very clearly differentiated um, at birth and forever and stuck. But the musical chairs thing is interesting. Uh, my, my partner, Julie and I, we go, um, we, we, we play at being tourists in our hometown of London. And we were wandering around one of the nice bits of London recently, a place called, uh, a place called Hampstead, where the houses are just gorgeous and the streets are lovely and there's no litter at all. Um, and everybody's nice and everybody's well-dressed and fantastically good looking and so on. And we thought, well, you know, the, 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 the music stops, everybody's unemployable, and some people happen to be living here. Other people happen to be living at the other end of town where the houses are stacked 20 on top of each other. They're small, they're pokey, there's no sound um, insulation between one flat and another. Uh, they smell, you know, it, it's really rotten. Those people are stuck there. Now, that's really unfair. I have no idea how in a world where you know, the economy isn't, isn't something that we're all engaged in, I don't know how we keep mixing it up. I don't know how we keep changing all of that so that people aren't stuck with whatever they happen to have when the music stopped. Right. Oh, and it definitely seems to me like the practical solution there is not to fix the buildings or redevelop the land, but just to slap some VR goggles on the people stuck in the small crappy houses and make those as good as possible so that uh, they don't have to smell the smells or see the sights of the place they live. I, I feel like, you know, 10 generations from now, we'll be able to give uh, the people who have worse housing such good virtual experiences that they may, I mean, already we're finding there's, 
there's studies out there. I don't have this at my hand right now, so I don't have the numbers, but there's studies that show that, um, like in America, a lot of unemployed or underemployed men are just, you know, basically filling their hours with video games because they're fun and they're cheap and they, they work for entertaining you. Uh, we could see, I, I guess, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure how much I'm worried about the gods and the useless scenario. It de- really depends on me, uh, for me on where the floor is set, right? So, like, if everybody who's in the lower class is reaching a level of self-determination in their life where they get to choose what they do from moment to moment enough, I'm not sure that they'll care. Uh, just, just, you know, it, 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 analogously to the way it would be with uh, an AI superintelligence uh, running around running things. You know, maybe we'd be disturbed by the abstract idea of, like, robot Bill Gates's... Uh, like running our society, but maybe we just won't, you know, maybe we'll like spend all our time in the virtual world or doing uh, the various technologically enabled things that we have available to us and just be happy with that. I'm just, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's entirely possible. I mean, you know, we don't know how uh, big an impact virtual reality is going to have in the next 30 or 40 years. I, I, I think personally, I think it's going to be absolutely massive. And I think you're probably right. Most people will spend a lot of time in virtual reality. And it may be that takes care of the gross inequality that we already have and would be accentuated in the, in the real world. Maybe we won't worry about it anymore. There's quite a few people who think that's a, a horrific idea, but I, I don't agree with them, actually. I think that you know, if you live uh, an apparently gorgeous lifestyle but you live it in virtual reality, then you're still living that gorgeous lifestyle. So it could be, that could be fine. That could be the solution. Maybe it will be. We don't know. One of the things that, that made me write the book is that I don't know, and nobody else knows, whether technological unemployment is going to hit us hard, whether things like virtual reality will be a sort of a, 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 a safety door and we all escape into a glorious new world through that. Um, the changes that are going to come are going to come in the next two to three decades, three, three to four decades, perhaps two to four decades. And we're not doing any thinking about it yet. We need to. We need to be monitoring what's happening. We need to be doing scenario planning, um, not least because these things are going to happen quickly, but also because people will anticipate, anticipate them and they will take economic decisions based on their anticipation of them. We may start to see the effects of, of these changes within the next decade. You know, imagine if everybody starts to see totally autonomous vehicles on the road in two to three years. And Mm -hmm. in four to five years, there's a lot of them. And many drivers are starting to be made redundant. Imagine if a lot of people think, crikey, those guys who've just been made redundant from that job category, they are, many of them are going to stay unemployed. They're simply not going to find new jobs. And I'm a lawyer, but I can see that this is going to happen to me as well. It's a slightly different sort of system that's coming after me, but it's coming after me and I'm going to be made redundant as well. What I'm going to do is sell my house because I think it's going to be better to be in cash than in property. So I'm going to sell my house. And you could have an, a massive, the mother of all house price crashes, which would seriously damage a lot of, a lot of economies. You know, a lot of people say, well, that's not going to be much of a problem because house prices are too high at the moment. But if house prices just all suddenly lost all their value, that would be a huge shock to, to many economies. And it could start to happen fairly soon. You know, panic about what may happen could start to come fairly soon. So I think we need to be thinking about it, planning it. And I think we need a positive story about what's going to happen. 
Particularly, I think the tech giants actually have a certain measure of responsibility here because they are bringing along systems which are, which are great. They can do wonderful things for us. But they will have some of these, these effects. And we're not hearing a terribly positive story about, about how it can all unfold for the better. And I think we should be. Well, I certainly agree with that. And I think it, we do have to think about the effects of people anticipating it. I think one of the more positive effects of people anticipating it is that to the extent that people can retrain, and I know that we all have some skepticism about how possible that is, uh, you know, truck drivers are going to have a lot of advance notice. Because again, we're talking about this now, this stuff is making the covers of magazines and so on. Uh, people are right. getting, like, to me, that's the more positive side of the anticipation is, is not people necessarily liquidating their assets, but actually planning to maybe try to get whatever jobs may remain. Now, of course, if there are no jobs at all, that still doesn't help us. But um, Well, but if they're anticipating that coming, then that creates political will to, to do something, whether it's UBI or, or and something. And that as well, which I think, yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, we completely agree on this. And honestly, the reason that we do this podcast was, to some extent, uh, we had that thought uh, many years ago, and and when Martin Ford wrote uh, Lights in the Tunnel, it was what two thousand nine, right? So it's been seven years now that people of various kinds have been saying, "Hey, why is no one talking about this? Hey, is, why is no one talking about this?" And now I think we're getting to the point where people are talking about it. I, I yes, mean, the conversation has in, grown. Yeah, uh, it really has, and I, I think AlphaGo had a lot to do with it. That seemed to have lit a fire, didn't it? Yeah, AlphaGo uh, was a big thing. I think the the Watson Jeopardy thing was another big moment. And that was back in 2011, and yeah. not much happened then. Well, I think that that is. I mean, that's when we started. We started blogging in, in 2011, and I think it was right around the time that we first saw the Ford book, and and that Watson thing happened. And uh, and you know, at that time, we still felt like uh, a lone voice in the wilderness. But now, I feel like I've seen you know um, mainstream. Uh, political wonks cover this. Uh, yeah, I've yeah. seen, you know, I, I haven't heard like a major party political candidate talk about UBI or anything like that. I think we're we're a few. I think Bernie Sanders talks about it, but he talks about it from the position of of dealing with sort of tra the traditional concerns of the left rather than dealing with um, automation. Yeah, I mean, I remember him mostly uh, arguing for higher minimum wages, which I feel like is, in a way, it's almost the opposite. Wait, can we talk about that though for a second? Sure. Because. Yeah. Um, how fast we get automation is also directly influenced, one, by how people feel about this, as we're discussing now, but also the policies, especially minimum wage. If you raise the minimum wage, uh, you further incentivize companies to automate away jobs faster, which is interesting and maybe good, maybe bad, depends. <laughs> uh, and the same goes, I think, for basic income. If you have a basic income that's giving people a nicer alternative to maybe taking a really bad job, um, I feel like that also creates pressure on companies to automate more quickly. What do you think of those effects? Yeah, they, that's, that's possible. Uh, I suspect that they are at the margin and they won't, in, they won't affect the uptake of automation. I think the uh, ability of a machine to do your job is more driven by the, um, the advance in the, you know, the computer power, the amount of data it's got to play with and the, the, the sophistication of the algorithms. And those things are chuntering along at their exponential rate. And at the point where the machine is able to do your job, it's very quickly able to do it quicker than you, regardless, pretty much, of your, uh, of your minimum wage. Um, I suspect the minimum wage debate won't have terribly much effect on the speed with which uh, automation happens. Could I'm, be wrong. I'm, uh, I'm sort of skeptical of that, mostly because of, 
uh, textile manufacturing, which is one of the least automated industries in the world. And it's not because it's technically impossible. In fact, they have machines that make t-shirts. They just don't use them because it is cheaper to use Indonesian people to make the t-shirts. Uh, they just don't have the, um, the economics of it don't end up paying for the machines right now. Whereas if you, uh, if they passed a minimum wage law in Indonesia, that was somehow enforceable. That was, you know, $15 an hour tomorrow. I realize that's, I realize that's a little bit fanciful, but just go with me for a minute. Uh, that would, I think, it's, you know, that would reverse instantly. People would start using those. I mean, those machines literally exist, so you could just buy some. Um, there's a, a clothing manufacturing company here in America, called, uh, here in Los Angeles, called American Apparel, that um, is one of the like largest users of clothing automation machinery. And they do that because they want to manufacture in the U.S. and they're trying to keep their, their U.S. manufacturing costs down. And uh, the company that they buy machines from went out of business because nobody else was buying them. So wow. uh, they were they were literally, uh, even though they work and they uh, they are not they're not right now economical simply because of, of wages. But then, assuming there is AI involved in making those machines better, and I'll bet there is. Sure, of course. Then um, they're just on that they're on that good old exponential curve, and you know you know what those things look like, and the minimum wage level. It isn't really going to affect that very much. Yeah, yeah. I just think that if the company's not there to be innovating and making the machines, it's not going to, it's, you're not going to see those. I mean, you need to have it continuously going for these exponential effects to, to actually show up. They don't get better in a vacuum. They get better because there's some company that's making a better version of them year after year. Well, or they get better because a, an AI system becomes available or achieves a level of competence which means that, hey, we can, now beat the, um, we can now beat the cost of an Indonesian shirt maker. So there's a company over there making loads of shirts in Indonesia. Right. I can set up a company over here using this machine and make them cheaper. I can steal that company's business. That makes me a lot of money. I'm going to do it. So as soon as the machine gets cheaper, and it may get cheaper because of developments outside its industry, I think it will because it's driven by the advance of AI, then you know it makes sense to to set up the automated company over here. There's definitely a point at which it just gets cheap enough that you can't uh, you can't say no to it. I guess it uh, it's more of the question of does is the pace that we get this technology affected at all by policy? And you seem to be saying that no, or that it would be a small effect. Um, and and I I think that that's a reasonable position to take. I'm not entirely sure if I know that's true, but I don't know how one would begin to. Yeah, to separate it, it, that, anyways. Um, have to, but you know, it, it, the the effect, the, the the yeah, the effect is going to be years rather than decades. You know, you might delay things uh, five years, maybe a decade, by uh, by by fending off minimum wage legislation, but it's still going to happen, and that's why we need to plan for it. Now, I want to return to something earlier uh, on the topic of cohesion that you did mention, but we didn't really get to drill into, which is. When we're talking about the gods and the useless, back to this idea, um, for the people to become gods, you mentioned that they have to have privileged access to technology, right? Which would be a reversal of the trend we've seen, where technology seems to filter down to people pretty broadly. Everybody I mean, has the same iPhone, basically. Maybe not as fast as we'd like in a perfect world, but pretty fast. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, things that were luxury goods tend to become goods that everybody has. So what would cause the reversal of that trend that would allow the elites to speciate, as you say? Yeah, no, that's, that's a very good point and, and an important one. 
it's not so much a, a reversal of the trend, trend, it's an acceleration of it. So you're quite right. Um, a, a friend of mine likes to say that there isn't a refrigerator gap. And so why mm. would there be a digital gap? Why would there isn't a refrigerator divide? Why would there be a, why would there be a, a digital divide? And indeed, there isn't. As you say, smartphones are now all over the world. I, I read somewhere recently that there's more smartphones in Uganda than there are light bulbs. Um, but my contention is that, that because the technology is continuing to accelerate, you get to the point where the cognitive or physical advantage that a technological development provides you uh, only lasts for a week before the next one comes along. So there simply isn't time for it to, to be disseminated across the economy. You know, smartphones arrived, the iPhone arrived in, in 2007, and I think I, saw, I think I saw my first one in 2007. I thought, that's a pretty neat device, but I can't see myself paying all that money for that now. And I think it was probably about two years before I had one. I can't remember. Um, but if, if the developments are happening every week, there isn't time for that sort of thinking and and, and uh, price reduction as the, as the manufacturing goes up, the, the units get cheaper. There isn't time for those effects to happen. It's just be and, and it's, it's because it's all happening so fast that you get the speciation. Now again, I don't know for sure that's going to happen. And if it doesn't happen, then that may be helpful because maybe we don't have to jettison capitalism after all. But it seems likely to me that it will happen. And I think we certainly ought to be watching out for it uh, at, the time, at the right time. And drawing up scenario plans so that we can try and nudge ourselves towards the better outcomes rather than the worst ones. Well, it might be worth talking about which kinds of technologies would be a problem if you get them a week late. For example, a lot of uh, times these scenarios re revolve around, say, uh, I think there's a Hollywood movie or two about this, about like longevity medicine, for example. So if I, if, you know, we get some sort of medicine that can keep you alive indefinitely, repair your cells, so on. Um, if I'm poor, I get that a week late. That's no big deal. I'm assuming I don't die as during you that one a week, week from death. Yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, but you know, there are maybe some technologies that you get a week late, and that just causes you to fall hopelessly behind. Yeah, mm. like um, intelligence enhancement, maybe. Exactly. Right. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely, intelligent enhancement, but also physical improvements. I mean, you can imagine people who've got privileged access to these technologies becoming perhaps bigger, but certainly stronger and more resilient and less prone to any kind of disease, perhaps they won't need to sleep anymore. Yeah, although if I'm stronger or I need less sleep and I get that a week late, I'm not sure that that really has that big an effect. We well, had me. a less productive week because you had to sleep. I had a less productive week, but I can probably, I probably haven't fallen that far behind somebody who slept half as much as me or something. Whereas if somebody got smarter than me a week ago, they may have already laid traps that I can't get out of, that I won't even be able to see until I get the drug or whatever that makes me smarter. By which time they're on the next By drug which anyway. time they're already, right, they've already strategized past me. So that does scare me. <laughs> That's the one category where this, where like a week's or even a day's or a few moments advantage seems like it might snowball. Yeah, exactly. I, I, think, you're, I think you're right. I think intelligence is the spectrum along which the enhancement will be more uh, impactful. This might be the perfect time to bring up uh, Kevin Kelly's book. We had, uh, oh, yeah. we had Kevin Kelly on the podcast about his book, Inevitable. You've mentioned it a couple times today, actually. Uh, so I know you've read it and have opinions about it. He talks a lot about AI and intelligence. 
And he talks about it in a very distributed way where everybody's getting a little smarter, everything in the world's getting a little bit smarter. And it's sort of this, this layer that's spread across everything of, of artificial intelligence in, in a pretty, what seems like a pretty democratic way, the Almost way he like describes it. Almost like a faucet it. where you can turn on the smart, sort of apply it. <laughs> you know, practically, that sounds like something he would write, although it doesn't, I don't think it's exactly that. But uh, That's sort of the image I went in my head from reading that. What, yeah. do, you, what do you make of his view on this? Well, I agree with you. He, he does have a, an interestingly distributed view of intelligence. I mean, I, I, as you said, just read his book. I thought it was terrific. I, I think he's one of the most interesting people that I've, I've ever read. And this book is no exception. And I agree with him that where he says that intelligence AI is going to be the biggest of the 12 factors that he identifies, which are sweeping across society. He thinks it's the most profound and most impactful one. But he does have this, does seem to have this sort of inbuilt limit on the way AI can develop. He thinks it will be fairly low level, probably not that much smarter than it is already, but it'll just become more common. So there'll be intelligence embedded in everyday objects, um, probably in food and certainly in vehicles um, and, and buildings and so on. But that for some reason, he doesn't seem to think it will become a great deal smarter. Now, he objects to the idea that... Uh, there's a spectrum of, spectrum of intelligence, and we are sort of near the top of it. Um, he also objects to the idea that, that there is this sort of single spectrum of intelligence. And I think he's absolutely right to say there are probably all sorts of possible ways to be intelligent, which many, many or most of which would look very alien to us. But where I don't understand his argument is that he doesn't seem to think that AI can overtake us in all of our intellectual cognitive abilities. He doesn't seem to think that could ever happen. And I just don't understand why. I don't understand why he doesn't think that researchers will want to create really smart machines. Um, I think they will because they confer a huge advantage. You know, if you're running a, a company or a government or, best of all, an, an, an army, you want the smartest possible machine because if you don't, somebody else will, and they will either beat you economically or kill you <laughs> if they're an army. So I think... The, the drive to create smarter and smarter machines is irresistible. Um, and so I don't think intelligence will be smeared across the landscape in a thin film. I think it will be clumpy. Um, and in fact, that, that leads me to another thought, which is there's a lot of talk about bots at the moment, and every company seems to be wanting to develop its own bot, which we will speak to as consumers. And that strikes me as being probably the wrong approach. I think it seems to me that, that we will wander around the world with companions, with intelligent companions, which will be the successors to Siri. So we will have a sort of pretty clumpy intelligence, which is our companion, which knows us really well. We spend our lives with it, uh, and it knows how we're likely to respond to something, whether we're going to want to know it or whether we're going to want to know something. It will predict what, we're, what question we're going to ask next. Um, so I think that's another reason why intelligence will be clumpy and getting more and more powerful rather than this sort of thin, smeared out thing that Kevin seems to, seems to envisage. Well, I'm glad you brought up the assistance again, because I, I was trying to talk about that earlier, and I don't know if I expressed myself well, when we were talking about augmenting humans. And um, I, I agree with you that, you know, if, if augmenting humans means, you know, causing a computer to interact with every neuron in someone's brain, then we're probably not going to get that kind of technology in time to stave off the types of automation problems we're discussing. I do wonder about those assistants that are those AIs that are very tied to a single person with sort of what the world you're painting. 
uh, where they're very trained to respond to just you. And so you have a very, very tight symbiotic relationship there between a person and their AI, which I feel like is going to, like you said, be clumpy. I think it's going to differentiate people in the marketplace potentially, right? Where you, you, the particular marriage of you and your AI and the way your AI is trained and the interactions you've had might create a pretty unique set of skills and abilities. Does that not sound at all like a plausible advantage when it, when it comes to the issue of trying to find things for people to do if everybody's augmented kind of in unique ways by their partnership with an AI? I see what you just did there. You're, you're reintroducing your super centaur thing. Yeah. What I wonder about, what I question is, what value is the human bringing to that combination? Um, direction. You know, the, the, I mean, the, the AI... Well, the, well, the AI set a direction. It, it, it knows what the goals are and, and it, it knows what society's goals are or it knows what the, um, the market signal is giving it and it can make decisions much faster than the human can. The, the, the AI... But where is the AI getting of ultimately getting its direction from, right? It's got to be from somewhere that's human. It could get it from the market or it could get it from a government. But what is it uh, optimizing for, right? I mean, it, it, presumably if it's my personal AI, it should be optimizing for my benefit, right? It, it, yes, it would. But the, the model, it seems to me, is that the, what you have is a, an Uber butler rather than a team. You know, the AI becomes a very powerful aid uh, and you're not so much working with it and providing and creating an economic unit. It is providing you with fantastic levels of service, you know, very, very enviable levels of service. Yeah, it seems to me like the the way this would play out is um, as an example of a superstar effect. Like it might make one human spectacularly productive at their job because whatever part of the job is left that the human needs to do, however small that part is, uh, they're able to do very symbiotically with this powerful AI, but um, it, it'll either re reduce the cost of whatever it is they're doing or, or, or greatly increase the amount of it that gets done. Well, I'm not sure it'll create jobs. I, the AI, okay, I, I admit that I don't have this fully fleshed out, but yeah. I, I think this world is important to try to imagine and it's very difficult to imagine what it's like when we all have these like super butlers. I, and I think it's super butler kind of trivializes it potentially. Um, because if there's a really tight feedback loop there where the assistant is also, is also setting some, some of the agenda as well. Right. And so the human setting some of the agenda and part of the agenda for the AI is to help find work for the human, to help the human find a niche to differentiate themselves. I, I, you know what I mean? I feel like you guys are still acting as if the human is on their own here and they're just uh, looking for existing jobs. But like creating your own work, I think, is going to be, if there is an economy at all in a traditional sense in the future, is going to be, that's what it's going to be about. And the AI will help you create your own niche, potentially. That's what I'm trying to so maybe an, throw a, out there. A, a, an AI that basically searches for scarcities that you can exploit. And helps you evolve and train towards that tiny island that still exists. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe that will work. It's, it's entirely plausible. And, you know, like, like we keep saying, no, nobody has the answers. Um, but imagine there are two competing entities. One is, is carrying around, figuratively speaking, this, this human and having to kind of keep it up, try, try and sort of bring it up to speed all the time, find a niche for it, um, find a role for it. 
and there's another entity which doesn't have that baggage and can simply respond to the market demand or respond to the, to the government request um, immediately and quickly and directly, it's going to get the job done quicker, cheaper and faster. So it is going to be the economically effective agent. I just don't see what the human brings to that employment equation. The human brings consciousness to the equation, which we value very highly and, and transcends the employment question. And that's why it's worth paying us the universal basic income. That's why it's worth making sure this all works out well, because we value consciousness and the machines don't have that. Um, so we're more important than them in that sense. Um, and we're more important than them because at the moment we call the shots and we make the rules. So that's what we decide. We decide we're more important than them. But economically, I'm not sure what the human is contributing to that equation. Well, again, yeah, they, I can only answer that with they're contributing the things that they still have that are scarce, which is their attention, Ability status, to their, status, the sense of, you know, interaction they have with other people. So that's, that is all that they can contribute. So I, I guess I, we're sort of repeating ourselves here, so we, could, we can move along. But, uh, but yeah, that would be my response to that. Well, time will tell, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I guess I'm not sure where I fall on this, whether I think, yeah, once the AI can search out niches for you to perform in, it seems like it can probably search out niches for itself to perform in exactly just as yeah. effectively. And I wonder whether that won't be the more common. But my AI better not be looking for ways to obsolete me and, and go off on its own, or I want a new no, AI. Someone else's AI will be doing that, right? Uh, yeah, well, that's the thing. If your right. AI isn't looking for ways to obsolete you, then you're just going to get disrupted by somebody else. It's right. better to eat your own lunch than have somebody else. Well, and that's where the, the issue of fairness and you know, access to these things. I mean, that's how we got on this topic to begin with, right? So if we all have equally powerful AIs, I think that my scenario maybe has some plausibility, but certainly it... If what you're saying, Callum, is true and we have these delays, you know, and this stuff rolling out, then people will have better AIs than other people. And those are the people that will win. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the sort of longer term danger of the gods and the useless. The, the, the immediate term danger, the thing that worries me really is, is we haven't a plan for how to, how to switch to a world of universal basic income. Um, we've, got a, we've got a plan which the political left is putting forward, which I don't think will work. We haven't got, really got a detailed plan for how to do it when we actually need it. Now, Y Combinator, Sam Altman um, in the States is, 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 I don't know if it started yet, but they're running an experiment with, with UBI, um, which I think is, is uh, guided by the right question, which is how do we introduce it when the time is right? But at the moment, most mainstream economists are completely in denial. And who knows, they might be right. We don't know for sure that they're wrong, but they are in denial. They're saying this stuff is not going to happen. We don't need to worry about it. That's the thing that worries me. Well, and then how would we know when it's time to introduce it, right? Because it sounds like you've been saying, we don't need it now. We'll need it at some point, right? And we talked a little bit about halfway measures, but do you have a proposal for a halfway measure yourself? Or do you just think it's or a matter a, of... a trigger, a, for a, a moment. For yeah, what to monitor to know when to, to implement it. I don't. No, I'm, 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 I feel very remiss. I don't have a program. Uh, I don't have a, a timeline all mapped out for when we're going to need it. I, I imagine that it would be unacceptable politically anyway until it becomes pretty blindingly obvious that we need it. So, you know, I, I think it'll probably be when unemployment hits a level which is clearly unsustainable and or the point at which most people realize, you know, that politics has a way of changing uh, political mainstream opinion has a way of changing when a crisis becomes apparent 
and I think you know there will come a point in each country when it becomes apparent that most people are not going to work again, uh, and that's the point at which we need to introduce it. But I think we need to have some worked out plans of how it gets introduced, and and kind of you know all the communications around that, which we haven't even begun to start work on. So no, sorry, I don't have all the answers mapped out. I'm just really asking the questions. Well, I would add in something that you do mention in the book, uh, which is that there's potential drawbacks for a country that does this unilaterally. If that results in higher taxes or possibly just a lot of people migrating to that country to take advantage of the UBI um, in a way that that country can't handle. Um, So maybe one of the things that needs to happen is we need an international consensus on this and some agreement to adopt the same policy worldwide. Yeah. That that sounds like it would be a very good thing, but crikey, how hard is that going to yes. be? Yes, also that yeah, just makes it plus countries to agree. Right. Well, and I think you probably don't need every country to agree uh, uh, because there's obviously already pretty serious controls on immigration in most countries. So it's not like they'll just get flooded. Um, but you might need agreement maybe among some of the larger economic blocks in the world, like maybe the U.S. and the EU might have to agree or the US and China might have to agree or something like that before before this can be feasibly done by by anybody um uh too large. I mean, I could maybe be done in a small way by a small country now. Um I I saw it in reference to the Finland thing, somebody saying like if they do this, they're going to get, you know, tons of EU in, in, internal EU migrants coming to Finland. Yeah, well, exactly. I don't see how they can avoid that because they are members of the EU and uh you know, the, the free movement of people within the EU is one of the pillars of it. You can't stop it uh, and remain a member of the EU, as, <laughs> as, as my as, country As the British uh, are finding out. <laughs> <laughs> decided to, probably to its great cost, but we'll see. Um, but yeah, so I don't, I don't see how the Finns are going to stop a massive tide of immigration, you know, even when they do introduce that. Um, if well, I could migrate there, I would. It's very cold there, so maybe that will help them. <laughs> it's very cold there, and the suicide level is extremely high. But they're great people, the Finns. They're great fun. They're, they're nice. Well, Callum, what, do you have anything else that you want to get into? Uh, I think that uh, we've covered a lot here. I think we have. There is one question I wanted to ask you, which is in a recent episode, I don't know which one, you said that, um, and I think it was you, John, said that you couldn't see how privacy could, privacy could um, be sustained in a world where the cost of killing a million people was, was becoming very, very low. Mm. And I think that's a really powerful argument. I was just wondering what sort of feedback you've had about that. Uh, other than from you. Surprisingly uh, little. Not that much. Or Actually, we're working on ways to try to foster more of a conversation online around our podcast. But um, no, I haven't gotten a lot of feedback on that. And that, that issue concerns me tremendously. Um, I, I take it you are also worried about that. I, I am. And actually, I was interviewed on, on my local radio station recently about the book, and I mentioned it. <laughs> and the presenter, he's a charming man, gave me a very blank look and said, I don't understand what that sentence means. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you know what uh, family dinner's like for us. <laughs> we, get, yeah, well, we, we get that look a lot. <laughs> it's been like that for me for 15 years. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know what we are going to do uh, when it comes to, you know, when it becomes clear that individuals can can cause that kind of mayhem. But given what we've done with far less destructive potential in the hands of individuals, I am worried that it's going to be a draconian over-response, at least at first. So I think Kevin Kelly kind of 
he, he, he sort of skirted around the issue. Um, and I think he might well agree with you. He, he, sent, he essentially seems to be saying with regard to privacy that we can't really have any. Um, but what, we, what <laughs> right. we will do, what we'll have to do is, is have covalence. So we'll have to surrender all of our information and, and governments and other people will have to be able to see what we're doing all the time. But we will know what they can see. We will have the same information about them and that will make it... Um, you know, a, a level playing field. And I think, I think that is probably right, actually. Yeah, that strikes me as right. Uh, and we've, we've discussed covalence on, on the podcast before. I think that's a tolerable world. But I also feel like, you know, it's, you were going to really have to tear a lot of that information out of the governments. Uh, I mean, the states are not going to just give that stuff up. Well, and here's the thing, too, is that covalence, you know, the, the, there's a David Brin's book, Transparent Society. So there's that term. Right. And what's interesting about the, the issue of transparent in this case kind of covers two things. The transparent in the sense of they're watching us, we're watching them. You know, we can see what the cops are doing. So we, if they committed a wrongdoing or enforced something incorrectly, then we can make noise about it and complain about it. Um, and, but that's if we can understand, okay, that's a cop, that's a human, they made a decision, it was bad. If it's a police drone and that you get right. to this issue that John Danaher raises of algocracy that has some very opaque machine learning algorithm that's dictating where it goes and where it flies and who it arrests and who it potentially even opens fire on, right. then we could see it with all the cameras in the world, but that's not really the right kind of transparency, right? We need the kind of transparency that tells us, gives us an explanation later for why it did something. And right. that, that is also very concerning. Right. Yeah, because that explanation simply may not be available. It may not be possible to reverse engineer its decisions. Right. We may not have a human readable output of what the decision was. It might be yeah. a complex algorithmic thing that's basically, you know, minority report to us. It's like, you know, the, well, it's like you the psychic says he's going to commit a crime. You know, it's not like it, 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 there's some statistical likelihood it was correct and that's all we have to go on, you know, and like yeah. uh, that's very terrifying uh, because the... Um, Recourse when things go badly is so minimal in that case. So this has been an extremely fun conversation. I could probably keep going for a, another hour. Just, to, but uh, any final trip? But your audience may be getting a bit. Yeah, I think we should probably wrap this one up, Callum. Before we do, uh, do you have anything you wanted to get out before we uh, close the door here? Not, not really. I mean, um, you know, obviously. It I think it'd be great if people read the book and um, contribute to the debate. And I'm, I am interested in suggestions about what to look at next, because I'm not decided what my next book will be. Okay, well, that's great. The, tell Callum what he should be looking into. That's, uh, that's a good thing for the listeners to do. Again, the book's name is The Economic Singularity, Artificial Intelligence and the Death of Capitalism. We'll have a link on our show notes so you can um, go get it. I strongly recommend this book, particularly to listeners who want to give a book to somebody who doesn't think too much about these ideas and wants like a broad, easy to read primer that actually covers everything. I think this is a great place to start. Thanks very much for coming on the show today and uh, having this great conversation with us. It's a great pleasure as always. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.